Hello, I'm Joe Ruggiero, and welcome to my podcast, Inspired, and the people that inspire me. I'll be talking about my favorite subjects, interior design, gardening, food, fashion, and old Hollywood history. Thanks for joining me. We are here at the beautiful Calabasas Country Club in Calabasas, California. And what a treat to look out at this superb course. And I'd like to say thank you to the staff for letting us launch this podcast right here in Calabasas at the Calabasas Country Club. Today I'll be talking to my daughter, better known as Entertaining with Beth, and talking about food. But I have the unique pleasure of interviewing her. And she's the talent behind Entertaining with Beth on YouTube channel. Her blog is dedicated to easy recipes and entertaining advice. But she didn't start out in front of the camera. In fact, she started behind it, producing a few of the shows for HGTV. As a matter of fact, she worked on the crew that launched the network in 1994 when we had to go to a sports bar to see it. <laughs> and then we enjoyed 83 million followers. And when we got our stride for 16 years, we traveled throughout the world. And uh, we have some funny stories. Maybe she'll talk about a few of them. But uh, she then took a staff position as a producer for Scripps Networks, producing many other lifestyle shows, and then ultimately transitioned to Einline Media, where she led the programming department at Kin Community, a lifestyle network on YouTube, which is where the idea for her own brand was born. Hello, Beth. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Dad. It's good to have you here. Well, I'm honored to be your first guest. I know. Isn't this exciting? <laughs> it is. But I want you to talk a little bit about, well, you're not going to mention this, but these are the awards that you have won, <laughs> which I think are pretty good. Three taste awards, including the best of instructional web series, the best of home chef, and the best single topic series, yes. which I think is terrific. <laughs> Spoken like a true father. Well, thank you. Yes, that was a few years ago, but it's definitely uh, fun to be honored in certain ways when you, you know, reach a certain level of, I guess, success doing it over and over again to get, you know, noticed is always nice. Well, you also have some exciting news to share with us. Yes, I have a cookbook that is coming out in uh, summer 2025, which is very exciting. And you love your editor. Yes, I love my editor. I love my publisher. It was a long time in the coming. I just, for a long time, spent so much time in video. And I just kept thinking, oh, these books are so much work. Like, do I really want to go down that road? But I think after 10 years, you do sort of want something tangible for your work. And I felt like my audience would want it to. Like, they kept asking me, when are you doing a book? When are you doing a book? And I finally just found the right partnership. And I'm really excited about it. And it's unique, really. Yeah, I mean, I think all authors like to think their concept is unique. I think it's perfect for what I want to put out in the world, which is connecting with beginner cooks, because I think a lot of people have been intimidated by their kitchens. And my whole platform has always been about getting people to fall back in love with their kitchens and making it easy and making it inspirational so that they want to cook. So the name of the book is called Entertaining 101, 101 Recipes Everybody Should Know How to Make. And I think that's just speaks to the fact that 
certain times a year, we all crave certain things, whether it's spring, we want that key lime pie, or in the fall, we want a great butternut squash soup, or the holidays, we want a roast beef tenderloin, and showing people the simplest path to how to get the best results. The thing that I think is especially wonderful about you, and there are many things, I'm sorry, proud <laughs> oh, Dad. Papa, but that you are able to address vegetarians, vegans, yeah. uh, carnivores, <laughs> such as myself. But um, that's not easy. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes it's easy when you're producing food content to either fall into one camp, whether it be, you know, vegan, vegetarian, or sweets, or savory, cocktail nibbles. For me, I love to eat all of it, so I love to cook all of it. Oops, sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> well, you also have a, a wonderful ability to address your subject. I mean, even if there's a catastrophe that happens, and, and, and this is the thing that I enjoy about your followers. They feel, and they're from all over the world. Yes. Which I think is also very interesting. Well, that's the exciting thing I think about online audiences. Unlike television, when, you know, back in the day we were producing all of these things for HGTV and the Scripps Networks, you didn't really reach an international naughty audience that you got feedback from. And I think that's what has been so fun about YouTube is 50% of my audience is outside the United States. So you really get so many different perspectives. And I think the traveling that we did all those years, those 16 countries that we traveled to, helped me identify with followers in those countries. So when I have a follower from Spain and they're talking about a place in Spain that we had visited, it helps me identify with that, or France or Italy or Australia. It feels like you have an audience of pen pals and just makes the world feel smaller and more intimate. Can I ask you what maybe one of the most enjoyable parts <laughs> of traveling with your father was, <laughs> except for the protection? But I mean, there were some funny there happens. were somebody things. Well, I think this wasn't one of the international trips, but this was a domestic trip when we were doing Homes Across America, where we went to maybe 200 different homes across America over the course of a series of years, interviewing designers and also visiting interesting homes. And there was the gentleman who lived in Athens, Georgia, and we arrived late at night, and he, he was running a bed and breakfast out of his home, and all the restaurants were closed, and we were like, what are we gonna do? And he was like, oh, I'll cook you guys dinner. And we sort of looked at each other like, oh, this is so awkward, I feel so bad, like he's gonna cook us dinner. And he maybe just boiled us some pasta with butter, I don't even know what it was, but it is like, still to this day, the most memorable evening, sitting outside in this southern landscape in the middle of nowhere with candlelight, eating pasta, speaking to this man who was so interesting, <laughs> and the two of us were just like enthralled, listening to this man, and I just, I think it goes back to people don't remember what you serve them, but they remember the memory or they remember the, the setting that you create or the how you can transport people. And I think that's what really attracts me to entertaining because you can create these environments that people arrive and they feel like they've been transported. And yes, if you cook them something delicious, they'll remember that too. But I think making people feel comfortable and welcomed is step one. Well, I think too, speaking of food, one of my most memorable events was in Maine. And oh, I yes. just casually happened to mention to the person that we were interviewing that I liked lobster rolls. Oh, you like lobster rolls? And then he set out this spread <laughs> with the I most incredible, awesome. I mean, it was just so perfect. Well, so, in the pouring rain. Right. Remember, it was like pouring, and he had to go out and get the lobster rolls. And even though the bread was a little bit soggy, it was so delicious <laughs> that we just like scarfed them all up. Well, I think that that is part of, I think, your inspiration is that you've traveled a lot um, and I know you don't like me to talk about your French visits but 
you do, you're married to a Frenchman, who I introduced you to. Right. <laughs> but how about the different cultures that you love to travel? No, I do. I love to travel. And it's not that I don't like you talking about that. I think, like, you know, it can come off sometimes... I don't know, maybe pretentious, like, oh, I have a house here and I have a house in France. But I think when you're married to a foreigner, yeah. at some point, they want to go back to their country. Right. And I think you make choices in life what you spend your money on. And we don't buy a lot of expensive things. We don't take big, extravagant trips. But we do make a point to go to France every year because it's important for our children to realize that they are half French and they are half American. And so much of our our life is spent here in the United States, so it's important to balance that out so that from a very early age, they understand what it also means to be French and how they can relate with that part of the family. So I think a few years ago, we realized they're getting very attached to these rental homes that we keep renting over there. We should really try to buy something so that they too feel like they have a little bit of a home in France that they ultimately will hopefully go to one day when we're not around anymore. <laughs> so well, it's been fun. That's an interesting subject. What is it like being a mother, managing a house, and also creating this business that you've created. Yeah, well, I think, you know, women, there's a lot of pressure now to do it all, you know? I think the blessing and the curse of maybe women 100 years ago is there weren't as many choices. And I think now we have so many choices that I think in the early part of my marriage, I was working... Um, and I had a career, and I also wanted a family. And when I realized I was doing both of those, one of them always felt like it was suffering. Either I was at work worrying about things going on at home, or I was at home on the weekend worrying about things going on at work, and you just never felt like you were doing either one of them well. That I realized when I started launching this channel, even though it was part of my job and I was kind of doing it as a side hustle, I thought, well, what if I could do this as the main hustle? I think the promised land for me, and it sounds simple, but the promised land for me was I just want to pick my kids up from school every day. Like, what can I do to pick my kids up from school every day? And I realized, like, if I can make this YouTube channel into something, like, then I could get that. So I just kept the eye on the prize, and I did both for seven years, and it was a grueling seven years, getting up early in the morning to edit videos, shooting on the weekends to edit the videos, and also working 50, sometimes 60 hours a week with a two-hour commute. Like, that was really grueling, but I'm so glad I put the time in, because now I'm really living the promised land that I always help to live, and I... Don't take that lightly. Lightly, Every time I pick them up or I drop them off, I'm so grateful to be able to do that because the years are short. You know, they go by quickly. Well, I think, too, going into business for yourself is no easy task. No. And I remember my own self. Uh, people kept saying, you should start your own business. You should start your own business. Well, I didn't have the money. And then, luckily, the Kohler Company was really my benefactor and my brother, and I can remember borrowing $5,000 from my brother and then working to pay it back. And he said, no, you are not to pay this back. Consider this a gift to launch your business. How did you come to the conclusion that you were going to launch? Yeah. Well, I think watching you do it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's that old adage, if you can see it, you can be it. You know, and I remember that being such a pivotal time in your life and in my life because I was just sort of finishing up with college. So I was old enough to see you do that and how much courage that took, I think, especially in creative 
industries to put yourself out that way. It's different if, I mean, maybe it's not different, but it seems different if you launch a business and you have a business plan and you're opening a shop or something and it's very you know, nuts and bolts and people need the service. But when you're putting yourself out there with ideas, like that is so vulnerable. And to be at a place where you're like, I'm gonna put myself out there with these ideas and I'm gonna hope that I'm gonna make money. But if people don't like it, they're actually kind of like not liking a part of you. And that is very scary and it takes a lot of courage. But I just realized, I think what made me do it, again, it was just my children. Like, well, it was the children, but also it was my husband and realizing one day we wanted to spend time in France and that the only way I was going to have that flexibility is if I had a business for myself. Well, you know, your grandfather, my father, was an immigrant and he was probably one of the best salesmen that I can remember. And I remember him saying to me, the most difficult thing in sales is to sell an idea because it's not tangible. And I remember when you would do pitches to the network, your sister did pitches to the network, but it, it's a difficult job. It is. It's very, but this is the thing that's so wonderful about living as long as I've lived is to be able to see you manifest yourself. <laughs> and when you yeah. used to say to me, dad, read my lips. I don't want to be in front of the camera. Or you would say, dad, I'm not a salesperson. I can't sell anything. Yeah. When you did both of those very well. Well, I think <laughs> it has to do with the subject. I think, you know, putting yourself in front of the camera is very scary if you're talking about something that A, you don't really care about, or you don't really have any expertise, or you don't have any experience. But I think what got me in front of the camera, and I still don't really love being in front of the camera, funny enough, like it still makes me a little uncomfortable putting myself out that way, but because I'm so passionate about the idea or the recipe and I really wanna share it, I sort of look beyond that because I'm just like, I have to tell people about this recipe because it's so delicious, or I have to show this place in France because it's so much fun and I want other people to see it because I think they would also enjoy it that I think that's the secret. So I think to anybody who has a passion, if you're passionate about something, talking about it, it comes very easy, easily, especially if you're doing something that might be uncomfortable, like being on camera for the first time. Well, I think your followers will attest to this. And the thing that makes you so engaging is that nothing is ever so perfect <laughs> that you can't make a mistake. So when you travel and you take your viewers or listeners or whatever along, we feel like we're traveling right next next to you because of your verbiage. I don't know, in film school they used to be call, called it uh, cinema verite, but truthful reporting. Yeah. And I think that that's what's so engaging. Well, I think the technology now has made that so easy. Like in the old days, even when we were shooting for HGTV and we were in France, you know, we had a five, six, seven person crew <laughs> with a huge camera and lights and, you know, a boom Equipment. mic. And no, you know, you, there was no way that no one was going to notice that. But for me, I shoot all of those things with my iPhone and maybe a little tripod that I just stuck in my purse so I can be, you know, having a snafu on a train and covering all of that and no one's the wiser. So I think that also has made video production just a lot more voyeuristic because you really are right there sitting next to me because my camera is right there <laughs> sitting next to me and we're experiencing it together. And I think that's a really enjoyable way to experience video. It's a lot of fun. Now let's get back to the book. You said testing is a difficult yeah. process. Well, it's a difficult process because in that regard, I'm really a perfectionist. I am really obsessed with getting the right recipe that is going to create the most consistent results. And I think anybody that's creating food content now knows what I mean because there will be times, like this chocolate chip cookie, I had to make it seven times because <laughs> 
I finally got to the point where it was perfect. And I, and I don't want to put something out in the world that isn't like totally delicious, I can't stop eating it, because it takes so much work to produce the content. Like especially for YouTube, it's you start with the testing and then once you get that recipe where you can't stop eating it, then you have to film it, you have to edit it, you have to shoot the blog for it, you have to do short-term video, you then have to promote it. So I don't wanna go through all of that if it isn't a recipe that I'm super excited about because it is so delicious. So I've taken that same work ethic into the book because that's in print. So there's nothing I can do to fix it if somebody comes back, like there's this one recipe I have on my YouTube channel for banana bread and there's, it's very, it's like a controversial recipe for some reason because some people want it sweeter and some people think it's sweet enough. It has three quarters cup of sugar in it. No, it has half a cup of sugar in it because you're using really ripe bananas, which adds a lot of sweetness, but some people think it should be three quarters cup. So on YouTube, I can just go in there and make a little note in the description and say, hey, if you have a sweet tooth, make it three quarters cup. But in a cookbook, you can't do that. So I just, I really want to make sure that every recipe is like rock solid, perfect. And also you were uh, explaining about the holidays and a funny, funny story is when you gave your husband his 60th birthday on both continents. Yeah, right, <laughs> which I, know. I thought We was did so one great. in France and then we had to do one in LA. Yeah. But it was a milestone. Yeah. But the thing that I thought was so much fun is not only did you take us through the process, but then all of a sudden you appear in this ravishing outfit <laughs> which looked like it was a designer uh, dress. And you have a funny story no. about that. Well, because it's so funny. My daughter, your granddaughter, is now 17. And I think around that age, they really love to go thrifting. And so she loves to go to the Salvation Army or the Goodwill and look for clothes. And so I get dragged to these little thrifting outings. And I used to love to do it as a young girl and a college student. And so it reignited my love for that. So I, would, I love to just go through the dresses because I find when you go to the thrift store, if you go to the dress section, these are usually like fancy dresses, dresses or party dresses that people might wear one or two times. So you get like some really great things that for whatever reason, nobody wears again. And I found that little red dress at the thrift store. I think it was like $8. <laughs> and it was perfect because it was so hot that night. It was like 110 degrees in the valley and we were dying and it was the only thing I could have on my skin. But yes, I know it did look good, didn't it? Well, you look like a million bucks. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you think but so. <laughs> let's talk about DNA. What's in your DNA? And I think, it's so encouraging to me because these generations pass. You didn't have a lot of grandparents when you were growing up. You had Grammy and you had, for a short time, my, grand, my father. But you are so your grandmother. And you insist that she saw you as an infant, which she didn't. You were born shortly after she died. But if there's anyone that's been reincarnated, it's been you. And I mean, <laughs> who loves to cook? Who loves to entertain? Although your mother did a beautiful job. And her mother and my mother also loved to entertain, loved to cook, loved to design, uh, which I think is so you cover all the points of entertaining. Well, I think I love domesticity. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a weird thing to say. And some people think like, oh, that's such a 1950s idea. But I love <laughs> the home. I love gardening. I love cooking. I love entertaining. I love all the things that have to do around the home. And I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I think, well, I, I think if I was to get really psychological, I think it's because I grew up in a home that was beautiful. I had a wonderful childhood. I mean, you and mom made an amazing environment for us that focused on design and cooking and entertaining. The gardening was more 
the non-edibles, the flowers, but it was still there. I think because I love to cook so much, I love to grow vegetables, but I think it was all there. And I think a lot of times as you get older, like the back half of your life, sometimes is about recreating the things you loved as a child. I think that's kind of what it is. On a budget. Because right. we had no I mean, money. Right, 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 right. Nobody has any money. We never as, have any money. As We're a matter, like as a matter of fact, when we bought our house in Connecticut, um, we had moved from Ohio, and we really had a lovely home in Ohio. But I can remember pulling up to this place, and the yard looked like the surface of the moon. I mean, <laughs> there were rocks. There was uh, clay. It was just a mess. And I can remember your sister saying, and I said to your sister, this is your new home. And she looked at me and she said, no, it isn't. You're kidding. <laughs> and then I proceeded to plant every single item in that yard. And as a matter of fact, your grandmother lived behind a woods and she had little miniature dogwoods growing. And she said, well, go ahead, you can pull them up. And I used to pull them up with one hand because she said they've been sheltered. They will spring mm. forward when you put them in. Planting them, planting Pachysandra, and um, all of the things that to make a house a home. Yeah, well, and the funny thing is, is I remember that. And I remember <laughs> thinking, wow, that is like magic that it really inspired me to find a project. I mean, I think, Philippe, this is one of the things we share in common is we love to take things that look like nothing and turn them into something. Mm. And I think that's such a fun thing. I mean, the house that we bought was a foreclosure. It looked like the surface of the moon. And I remember when we bought it and I said, oh, I'm gonna take this whole front yard and turn it into a vegetable garden. And mom was like, what, you're going to do what? <laughs> and, and I know you guys didn't believe us. You're like, oh, you're not gonna do that. And sure enough, that, that, that day you came over and we had it all mapped out and dug up, you were like, wow, you're really gonna do this, aren't you? And we are like, yeah, we are. I, that's I think, the leap of faith. Yeah, that's the leap of faith. And I think it's important to also show your kids that because it shows vision and it shows being resourceful and it shows like a certain level of grit that I think you can just take something and not be afraid of it and turn well, it into something great. It's that can do you know, yeah, mentality. And you know, your grandfather, my dad, he being an immigrant, he lived through two world wars, a depression, and it, he had sometimes three jobs that he had to do. He was, uh, you know, the father of five kids. My, I'm being the baby, but um, he was able to send us all to college and graduate school and law school and et cetera. Yeah. So it's that can do. Well, it's the where there's the will, there's the way, you know? And I think if you have the will to do it, you find the way. And I think that's, that's right. been your motto and it's definitely been my motto. <laughs> and looking back, and I was mentioning this uh, before, that there are certain angels that help pave your way. And you're too young, but as you get older, you'll look back and you'll say, oh yeah, that person did help me, or that mm -hmm. person did point me in the right direction. Which leads me to the name of this podcast, which is Inspire, mm -hmm. Inspired. What has inspired you? Oh, well you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, wait a minute, folks. I did not lead this. <laughs> no, it's up. true. I, this is not my idea. No, it's true. I was thinking about that when you told me you wanted to do a podcast on what the name of it was going to be because you are the original creator. Like, when I think of how people create now and what they do, it is like the, you do all the jobs. And you, you have always done all the jobs, you know, between the designing and the writing and the producing and the traveling and the interviewing. Like, that was so powerful to see. And I think, you know, as a woman being inspired in video production 
where it has traditionally been such a male field. I mean, I remember being on several shoots, being the only women, woman, and as I grew into my own career in video production, it stayed that way. But I think now what's so interesting is the barrier to entry for video production has become so much lower that there's lots of women doing it. And I love seeing that because I think in today's world, if you're gonna be a creator, you do have to do all those jobs until you reach a certain level of success and then you kind of farm it out. But I think just seeing you growing up, like growing up, like turning the Christmas decorations, creating Christmas decorations out of things from the yard or you know, to going to the Goodwill and <laughs> or finding- Or from neighbor's yards. Or from, yeah, right, <laughs> clipping the neighbor's yards or going to the Goodwill and finding a dresser and turning that into something really beautiful in our rooms. Like I, I just think that whole idea of creating something from nothing. Like I, I saw you do that first and I think that's been the biggest inspiration for me. Well, what is that, uh, the mother of necessity? Yeah, the mother of uh, invention. Something like that. <laughs> yeah, that, like necessity is the mother of invention. Right, exactly. It's so true. But I think that, and I heard um, Anna Wintour, who is the Vogue editor-in-chief, speak at um, Cambridge and she had said, there aren't specialties as much. You have to be a Renaissance person. You have to try to do all of the tasks. Yeah. And I think that that was very interesting because, and you know, if you don't have the talent, then find someone who can help you with that talent. And that's why I've always been a big proponent of interns. Yeah. And I love to help the students. When we would install our showroom in High Point, I would engage maybe five interns and they all loved the task and they loved the process. We didn't have the opportunity of hands-on. We would interview for a job and they would say, what's your experience? And I would have to say, well, I don't, I was a lifeguard at the Jersey Shore. <laughs> I don't know if that's gonna help me with this particular job, but I think that gaining that experience has never been better than now. Well, yeah, and I think that's the fun thing is there's not as many gatekeepers with all these open platforms like Instagram or YouTube or any of these things. Like anybody can get out there and launch their little shingle. I think the important thing is to try. I think sometimes if you don't even try, you don't even know what talents you might have. I never knew that I could actually take photography. Like that took a long time to learn how to do it, but everything is learnable. Like yeah. you can definitely learn how to do things that feel really scary you know, but at the beginning, nobody's really watching. So what does it matter? You know, you just have to try. Well, I have, <laughs> I can remember a conversation that I had with Sister Parrish, the great designer, interior decorator, actually, is what she called herself. And she, uh, I said, what's your advice? And I use, I, I usually ask people of note, what is their advice? And she said, train the eye, educate the eye, and travel is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that... I'd like to say that all of my children have felt that, that you have to educate your eye by the things you see. Yeah. And then you put your own spin on it, yeah. too. See, and taste. <laughs> like, I think one of the things that was so powerful about traveling all those places with you over all those years was after the day was wrapped, we would go out to eat. And we would go to, like, we would ask people, what is the best place to get this? Or where should we go to try that? And so we really ate our way through all those countries and all of those states that we traveled in. And I think that really informed my palate and what I love to eat and how, if I'm developing a recipe, I'm like, oh no, it needs to taste like this because I'm drawing on memories from that. So I think it's, yes, it's 
deal with your eye, but also steal with the taste buds and eat out as much as you can, especially if you're interested in being a better cook. Well, I think that's my editorial experience. When I was editor of Home Magazine, we should we would go into a market and we always had to go to what was hot, yeah. you know, what was new. And I think one of the funniest stories is when we were in Japan and you looked at me because you were in charge of all the dollars and you said, Dad, this is the most expensive Chinese food I think I have ever had in my life. I think it was $800 or something. It was ridiculous. Or when we were in Helsinki and we had the crawfish. Oh, yes. And I think they were $100 per crawfish no, or something like, like that. $10 each, and it cost $100. And we were like, why is this so expensive? Oh, the crayfish were $10 each, 10 euros each, whatever it was, whatever the, the currency was. It was wild. I know, it was crazy. It but was crazy. one thing I would like to ask you about, because you're the master of this, and that is stress. How mm. do you avoid stress? I've seen you balance I 16 know. side dishes and a turkey <laughs> in the oven and hors d'oeuvres and dessert, and you're like cool as a cucumber. Well, it's two things. <laughs> one, I think one of the most valuable experiences I've ever had in my life for stress is waiting tables. So I did that all as a young person, all through college, high school, whatever, because it teaches you how to have many plates up in the air. One person needs their check. The food is coming out. This person just sat down. And it's a part of your brain that is like a muscle. And if you work that, you can very easily compartmentalize different needs or what the crying baby, who's the crying baby in the room <laughs> that you have to like deal with right away. Like the food is coming out, you have to go do that first. Like the person who just sat down, you don't need to greet them right away. And I think it's excellent training for motherhood as well because yeah. there is literally a crying baby somewhere in a room. And I think that was super helpful. That and just, and yoga, you know, do, knowing how to focus on That's what- That's interesting. Yeah, being present. Because yoga, some of those positions are really hard and you're balancing. And if you're staring at something on the wall to get that balance, all you're thinking about is maintaining that posture. And I think if you are cooking and lots of things are boiling off, you are just concentrated on getting that turkey in the oven or cutting up that hors d'oeuvre. You're just, you can't think about all the other things that you have to do because you're just really in the present moment of whatever it is you're doing. I well, I know you and your sister did wait tables oh, yes. uh, all through college and uh, a little bit of high school because I can remember the time that we were at Fisher's Island and you guys were bored. And I said, OK, <laughs> yeah. we're going to get you a job as waiting on tables. But how do you handle cranky customers. I mean, oh, that's I the thing that has always amazed me. It's really hard. I mean, and especially now, you know, I hear some of the stories that come out now, like I think the public's even crankier than they were probably 20, 30 years ago, but I just lather on the kindness. Like, I think it's really hard for people to be cranky. Does that kill, kill them yeah, with kindness? Yeah, it's that theory. I think it's really hard for people to be cranky when you're going over and beyond for somebody, or if you do something that, you know, makes them feel better. I think it's worse if you just try to, you know, go at them. I don't think that's going to work very well. And that's the thing that I think is so great is you and your husband are very hospitable. You always feel very, very much at home, your guests, your parents, your relatives, and that's terrific. The only problem is you get stuck with all the holidays, but that's all right. <laughs> well, we like it that way, so it works out fine. Now, is there anything in closing that you that I didn't cover that you want to speak about. Oh, gosh, no, I think you covered it all. Oh, good. Yeah, I'm excited you're doing this. Who's your next guest? I guess I want to well, know. Well, we do have a couple of interesting people because, you know, I'm covering what I call my five pillars, and yes. that is food, interiors, gardening, uh, old, old Hollywood. Hollywood. Yes, are you going to have Brett Parsons on? Yes, and we're going to mm -hmm. be talking about 
architecture. We're going to be talking about interiors, world interiors, with Karen Malay. We've got a historian from Warner Brothers that's going to talk about the Calabasas Country Club as it was used as a movie set before oh, wow. it even became a golf course. And there are two sets that still exist. One is a stable where Elizabeth Taylor filmed National Velvet. So I think that it's going to be well-rounded. I think it'll have interest for those people who are interested in this subject. And my whole idea is to make people feel good. That's what I want to do. And I think that uh, you've launched this in a great way. I really appreciate you taking the time to share uh, your stories. And I'd just like to wish everyone who's listening to this podcast a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, um, but to really be inspired by the season and to share it with those who are less fortunate. That's all. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. Happy Holidays to everybody as well. And I hope everybody has a fabulous delicious feast plant. <laughs> thank <laughs> the you people so they much. love. Thanks and for having thank me. you for contributing to that. Of course. We'll be at your house for Christmas. <laughs> Wouldn't have it any other way. Thanks so much. Thank you.